Well, we take third time. <laughs> Hello, we are back with Anne to discuss the second episode of the Prohibition documentary um, that was produced by Ken Burns for PBS. Yes. Hi, everyone. How y'all doing? This one is also on Canopy, and I we still have it in our collection. So if you want the physical copy, copy, come and get it. Yes. So we'll just go right into episode two because it follows directly from episode one. Right. Exactly. And so to set the scene, the Prohibition Amendment had just been instated and people realize that they now have to enforce it and they have no clue how to do it. And that's exactly what it, (laughs) that is exactly how it starts. They did this and then they're like, well, what do we do now? Who's going to enforce all of this? Because they were heavily motivated by the fact that they thought that because they made it illegal that people would listen and that the scared or mm-hmm. and them being scared of being punished would right. be what enforced it. Exactly. That yep, and that's exactly what they said. That basically yeah. They made the they made the law and then they're all sitting around going, Uh oh. <laughs> what do we do now? Yeah. Everybody's like, okay. But I guess some places, like, there really wasn't big changes. Like, in the smaller towns and, like, rural areas. Yeah. Because I guess people were not really big drinkers mm-hmm. in those areas. So they didn't really feel the effects of, yeah. you know, prohibition. Um, it did say that across the country, it did cut alcohol consumption by a third. Yes, yep. Which is wild. <laughs> yes, and then and then the death, also the alcohol deaths went down, and so arrests were mm-hmm. also down at that time. Which is really, when you think about it, a third? That yeah. is a lot. It's a lot of <laughs> That people. is a lot of people. And then breweries start to make soda and ice cream and non-alcoholic beer, anything for them to keep their business yes. running. Yes, yep. And then um, the vineyards started, instead of growing the grapes for all the wines, they realized that they could sell it as fruit. So they started investing in other types of fruits to grow to keep their businesses going. But of course, as we all know, people still drank and then saw that they could manipulate the situation and get rich. Very fast. (laughs) Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Very, very fast. And this is also the time when... um, a lot of the speakeasies, the illegal speakeasies, yeah. though everyone knew about them, yeah. and basically all the like the local politicians in every area were bribed. The cops, mm-hmm. they were all bribed. They knew what was going on, but they got payback, so they just let them be. And they were often were, clients. Exa- of exactly, <laughs> and long as there wasn't a lot of problems going on, yeah. they just let everything go by the wayside. Yeah. And this is also the time when families started making their own liquors at home. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, because they would sell the kits. Yes, they would sell the kits, yes. Where they couldn't explicitly market it as to make alcohol, right. but all the ingredients were, were there. there. Exactly. And there were like recipes printed under the label. Yes, exactly, <laughs> and, what, uh, yeah, and what you were making. And so they tried to enforce it by creating the Volstead Act, which was written by... Uh, it was written by... by <laughs> Minnesota Representative Andrew Volstad. Yes. Yes, that was... That's the actual act, the name of the act. Isn't it for the Prohibition Amendment? Um, no, that's okay. the one that they used to enforce it. Oh, so that's the enforcing act. Yes. Okay. And that, it, yeah, yeah, that was a little confusing in the was. documentary. 
I'm just going to say part two has so much stuff in it that after a while I'm like, okay, did I really hear that here? Or? Yeah, no, it, they cram-packed it full yes. of just facts. Yes, very and much. stories, and mm-hmm. they really tried to get every aspect of it in, in an hour and a half. Yes. And it's a lot. It's, it, was a, it was very much a lot, you yes. You learn so much, but it's... So much, much information. information. Yes, it's almost like overload after yeah. a while. Very much so, yes. Yes. And the Volstead Act banned intoxicating substances, including beer, which was a complete and total shock to many people because most people thought beer was going to be untouched because it was such a staple in everyone's cultural lives. True. Um, but the act also wound up banding... Banding. The act also wound up banning certain foods that had high alcohol contents. Yes. Like desserts and cakes. Yes. And then the cook, then the different publishers started doing cookbooks with non-alcoholic recipes, yeah. which I was just like, oh my God, that is so funny. But yet yeah. white wine was still available at that mm-hmm. time. And so was hard cider, which... Yeah. You don't... Yeah. I, I don't like what... No. Yeah. I don't know why they picked pick and choose is that the word choose what they wanted to keep what yeah. they so it makes confusing for people trying to enforce it and people yes. trying to follow it yes um but yeah no the cakes and desserts amused me uh, me too very because much. i feel like often you don't think of alcoholic cake but then if you look at recipes for like puddings like classic english puddings it's always right. like three cups of whiskey yes icing has like two cups of sherry yes yeah <laughs> and you're like oh my god yeah i had no clue i had yeah. no clue this was this i found very interesting too that all the private clubs and the individuals that bought liquor before the amendment went into effect were allowed to keep everything yeah. I thought that was really very interesting. I had no idea that was the thing. No, no, I was like, oh, this is really. Hmm. So people did get yeah. to keep, did get to keep the liquor they they bought. Yeah. So a lot of the saloons just stockpiled it. Exactly. And it lasted them like a year or two. Right. So they were fine. Yeah. And this was also the time when people figured out that prescriptions were the legal yes. way to get whiskey into your home. You could have, what, was it one pint for every 10 days, I yes. believe? Yes. that's And per yeah. person. Per person. That's right, yes, yeah. per person. And then I found it fascinating that the Treasury Department was put in charge of enforcing it. Yes. Of all the departments, I would uh, not think Treasury. No, I, I would, that, yeah, I, I didn't get that one myself. Like, what was, I didn't get that. Yeah. And, like, there was, what, like, 15 thousand agents that was like one agent for every 70,000 people like yeah. how how are they supposed to enforce there's no way no. it was just it seemed kind of doomed from the start it, it was yes because then also the states thought the federal government was going to take the lead on enforcement but right. the federal government was like, trying to leave it to the states. states and then didn't the states also go as far as to say each area was supposed yes. to enforce like each county or whatever, mm-hmm. city, what you know, was supposed to enforce it. So it was just, it was interesting. It was just... Yeah. And then local governments tended not to enforce them because all the people in the local government, government would be going to the speakeasies. <laughs> exactly. And they're not going to take their night away. So. No. <laughs> and that's, as we all know, yeah. we spoke about it in the first part, that's where a lot of deals were mm-hmm. made. 
So yeah. bars and cafes and you're not going to shut down the speakeasy if that's no. where all of your constituents are, are going to be, be exactly. <laughs> yep, exactly. And most people, it seemed like they gave it a chance yes. and tried to get creative. Right. They had their mocktails. They yes. had their recipes for yeah. non-alcoholic desserts. desserts. Right. So there was ways. Yeah. Um, and then people just start smuggling. Oh yeah. This, yes. Yes. And just going back, what I found interesting too is I think you and I talked about this. Yeah. Um, wines in churches and synagogues were still legal, yes. and consumption increased by millions. And rabbis could write prescriptions for whiskey. Mm-hmm. And so everyone was becoming a rabbi, no matter what religion you were. Yeah. Everyone was just, I just, that was fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I would have thought that that was. No, I wouldn't have thought of that. But it, but that was creative. Yes. They, were, they, were, they were still trying to figure out ways. People got very creative. creative. <laughs> As we will find out later with some really interesting yeah. stuff. <laughs> so the first major person that they talk about is Roy Olmsted, and he was a bootlegger from the Pacific Northwest. Yes. And he would go through an island to get the alcohol. He would have people from Canada bring the alcohol <laughs> to the island, and then go back to Seattle, and he purchased a farm, so it was outside the city, and then he just supplied every single person in the yes. city with alcohol, from politicians to policemen mm-hmm. to absolutely anyone that anyone wanted. yes i found him fascinating because he didn't want people to carry guns or tamper with the whiskey and it was it seemed very like non-violent right for what exactly. you think of yes you bootlegger yeah bootleg, yes exactly i agree and i he only sold like the best canadian whiskey that they could get yeah so it wasn't cheap either to to get his stuff yeah. and in the episode they kind of go through everyone in chronological chronological order so that's how i have my notes that's how i think i have my okay. i think we're both the same on yeah. this one yes so then from talking about him they go to new york city yes and that was lou alpern yes mm-hmm. and he saw prohibition as a business opportunity oh did he ever <laughs> very smart so he was in the heart of new york city and he sold alcohol to people right downtown New York, around Times Square, I believe. They yes, said. it was. Yep. And he controlled a whole bunch of speakeasies, and and his shops were known as cordial stores. Yeah. So they were basically <laughs> a front with chocolate. I believe it was chocolate in the front, mm-hmm. and the liquor was in the back. Yeah. <laughs> but very smart. And New York City, because as Anne mentioned, there weren't a lot of prohibition agents. Yes. Had so few that they couldn't do anything, even if they they wanted to. No, they couldn't. No. There was just, I mean, they even said New York City was like the wettest city in the U.S. Yeah. There was bars on every corner. There was battlegrounds between the wets and the dries. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so the government kind of focused it on New York City. Yes. If they could make that be dry, then yes. everywhere else would follow. Yes, and that was not easy. And, but the problem was that politicians appointed the prohibition agents, and they were literally just whoever they wanted, and they got a gun and a badge, badge. and yep. they were just like, stop alcohol. Oh, yeah, exactly. They had no so, training. It just a bunch of innocent people got yep. killed, and yep. they were easily bribed. Exactly, and they some of them got trigger happy because yeah. they didn't know what they were doing, 
You know, and like you said, they started taking the bribes mm-hmm. by the bootleggers yeah. and the speakeasies, and within a year, we're making more money than they were with the bureau. Yeah. So, in my opinion, which way are you going to go? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm going to take the bribes and make the money. Yeah, and <laughs> the cops in New York City did not care about enforcing it no. at all because they were frequenting the speakeasies. Yes, exactly. So, yes. it was... And they felt they had more important cases than what someone was drinking whiskey in a speakeasy. Which is incredibly valid. Yes, very. I agree. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. At that time. Yeah. And then the government was like, oh, we need to make laws stricter. Yes. So they went to the Mullins Gage Law. Mm -hmm. And that made it so police were forced to enforce prohibition. And it resulted in courts just being flooded with cases to the point where federal courts would just do mass. Mass, yes, all at yes, all at once. And they were like, "Are you guilty?" And everyone would be like, "Yes." And then they would like leave. Yeah, that's all they could do. Yeah, yeah. There was there was just so much, and that was quickly repealed. Yes, very much. Nineteen twenty-three. Yes, and I think that was just more so that. The system could not handle. Could not that handle. Middle. No, you, could, you couldn't handle. No. Mm-mm. And then there were the honest prohibition agents who yes. really did want to help oh, fight yep. exactly against alcohol consumption. And that one of them was Frank Mather, I believe, and he was from the Treasury Department. He was in Kentucky. Yeah. And he he would throw all the mash and whiskey into the streams. Eventually, he was killed in Russellville, Kentucky, trying to rest some moonshiners. Mm-hmm. But he he was. He was one of the good ones. He wanted to have, he, yeah. he was following the rules. And in this part, it mentioned how the prohibition agents had such a tough time because they were often fighting with the local cops. Exactly, yes. And it just caused a lot of violence, and that's where a lot of the violence came Com- from. Comes from, yep. And then it goes to Chicago to George Remus who was a criminal attorney who defended bootleggers, but then he saw the massive amounts of money mm-hmm. they were making. Yes, he So did. he was just like, I'm going to become a bootlegger. Like too. And he became to bootlegging, and this is from the episode of what Rockefeller was to oil. Yeah. So you know he was doing really well. Yeah, he was the one that he didn't drink himself, right? No, he never did. No, no he was a teetotaler his entire yeah. life, which was amazing. But he just wanted the money. He so wanted the money. He opened up pharmacies. Yes. And because then he could write prescriptions, prescriptions. Yep. he got access to all of the whiskey that was left behind when all uh, the. Yes, because that's everything. one thing. We didn't t- touch on that yeah. when distilleries were closed, everything was left. Yeah. Like the whiskey was just left there. So he was smart, he knew what he was doing. Yeah. And he created an, it, called it a bootlegging empire. Yes. And he operated out of Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh-oh. And that is. Um, that's where he had. Um, he also established the Death Valley Farm that they t- mm-hmm. we, they talk about. That's where he stored everything. And I, um, from what I understood, the roads were lined with armed guards, and everything was strictly cash, so that there was no records yep. of anything. <laughs> he also met with the advisor to the district attorney to help keep him out of jail in case anything went wrong. Right. So he really tried to yes. cover all of his bases. bases. He did. He did. He even had his own, he even developed his own trucking firm so he could move everything around yeah. without any suspicion. And then from there it went to William McCoy and he was in the southeastern part of the country. Yes. And he got alcohol from the Caribbean mm-hmm. and the U.S. Coast Guard 
wasn't a major operation at this time. time right. So it was super easy to smuggle alcohol in. And Britain obviously didn't care. Care, exactly. And they were in control of the majority of the Caribbean. So, yes. And, and they were like, have all of it that you have, want. Yeah, and he literally, on one trip from Nassau to Savannah, he made over like $15,000. Mm -hmm. And then from Florida to Maine, eventually became known as the Rum Row. Yes. The whole coast was... And then, and then they talk about the rendezvous point at the southern part of um, Long Island, where I guess the ships would anchor, and people would go from ship to ship to decide yeah. what to buy, because they weren't on land, so there was no... Yeah, and they were out of U.S. waters. Squatters, so, yeah. So it's international waters. waters. You could do what you want. Yes. Brilliant, when you think of it. Brilliant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then it goes more back to the enforcement side yes. of it, with mm -hmm. Mabel Walker Willebrand. Yes. And she was incredibly famous for committing wholeheartedly to the enforcement of prohibition. And she was assistant, or I think I got it wrong. Attorney General? Yeah. Yeah, under President Harding. Yeah. And she was in her 30s, and people were just surprised that she was able to obtain that level of responsibility. But she had made a career out of practicing law and defending prostitutes yes. and was then just put in charge of prohibition enforcement. And she really didn't care either way about no, alcohol, no. but once she got that job, she committed. She committed to it. And what I liked with her, even when they talked about when she was the prosecutor helping prostitutes, she made sure that their customers had to appear in mm -hmm. court too, because why would they have to be? And then the customers got yeah. away with everything. So, to her, the law was the law. Mm -hmm. And she also... Oh, wait, hold on. And to help enforce prohibition, because she was the organizer of everything, yes. and really started developing the actual system, she had essentially a military intervention that inter in infiltrated the bootlegging industry, and went after the big names directly. Yes, exactly. And yep. her whole mission, I believe this is pretty much a quote from the documentary, was that she wanted to make the U.S. a dry country by force of will. Yes, exactly. Yep. And That's, nothing was stopping her. Nope, nothing was going to stop her. <clears throat> Not a thing. And then along with this, stuff started being added to the alcohol that meant people drinking them got severe illnesses, were paralyzed, blind, became... Even died. And yeah. Some people even passed away because they were putting, like, rubbing alcohol, wood alcohol, yeah. and toxic, other toxic chemicals mixed in with it. Mm -hmm. So you, you didn't know really what you were getting. No. And then I think an interesting point that they made in the documentary is that you can't really legalize or legislate against morality. Right. And so if you try to do that then those who already are in criminal enterprises and have more of a crime mentality can just use it to get power and money exactly and that's yes. where the mob comes in oh the mob <laughs> round of applause <laughs> <laughs> they obtain high levels of power oh throughout goodness. the country yes yes and most of the time the mob developed out of groups who had faced persecution by larger society and turned it around so that they controlled cities. Exactly. And then we they did break them down in the documentary. Mm -hmm. um, I just, the Purple Gang from Detroit, I, they were Joe and Beanie Bernstein and mm -hmm. Harry and Louis Fleischer. 
And then Philadelphia was run by Max Boo Boo Hoff, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which I just love the name. (laughs) And then it goes to the most famous of all in Chicago with Al Capone. Yes. And it talked about how when he was 23 years of age, he was so high up in the mob that he helped create a federation of neighborhood gangs. Yes, he did. So he got all the mobs operating in Chicago and just created one One, organization. And there were set rules where... Each group had to kind of stay in the area. Right, yes. And if it crossed over, right. then right. there would be action taken. Yep. And and with Chicago also, they had each, um, like, the Irish ran the north side of mm-hmm. the city, the Sicilians ran the west side, and the Polish ran the south side. I don't know who ran the east side because they never mentioned it. No. They only mentioned those three. So, but... But you're right, they had to stay out of each other's territories. Mm-hmm. And anyone who violated the rules could expect to be targeted by the others. Yeah. And it, they essentially said that the mob decided who was in charge politically, too. Yeah. Oh, Chicago, yes, they definitely. did. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. And they said also Chicago, by the spring of, what, 23? They said millions of dollars was being made a month from liquor, mm-hmm. prostitution, beer, and gambling. And Capone was getting 25% of the profits himself. Yeah, he was he was rich. He, he was rich, <laughs> and he was high up. Yep. And I saw his cell in Eastern Penitentiary when I visited. Yeah. Really cool. Yeah. <laughs> he had it all decked he out. He had it all decked just out. Yeah. Bribe everyone. Yeah. They just let him do what so he wanted to do. So he got his radio, and then yes. I, his bed's sort of like red, isn't it? Yes. It's like a nice it's red. red. And then he has a nice uh, oriental carpeting, a desk. Yeah. A nice easy chair, lamps. It was. A whole nine yards. Uh, yes. <laughs> so if you're ever in Philadelphia, go to Eastern State, take the tour. It's fantastic. Um. I think another interesting statement that they made in the documentary was that if everyone was breaking the law, there's no way the law can be enforced. That's yes, that is yeah. that exactly yes. And they I feel like that, that encompasses all of what was going on <laughs> right at the time. Yes. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and then we skipped ahead before I mentioned the. Um, recipes oh yes so i'm going to skip over that to kentucky kentucky okay go ahead um so then they talk about kentucky and kentucky most places most people associate it with whiskey (laughs) right and it was right around this time that that reputation began and they had an interesting discussion about how affluent white community members would go to black communities to get alcohol, and that created a lot of racial violence and tension when racist white members of society would get angry at other white people for purchasing alcohol from from the black communities. Exactly. And I thought that was interesting that was yeah that was very that whole part i didn't even i didn't even think of that when no but it makes sense Mm -hmm. you know i also love they talk about in the section how they would disguise alcohol shipments as milk shipments oh yes yes. go around in like a milk truck and deliver it to people's porches yes they're like daily milk. milk and here yes because weren't the bottles back then like white, completely yeah. white, so you couldn't see it through it. Mm-hmm. So yes, that that was very ingenious on their their end. Yeah. And then they mentioned Izzy Einstein, 
who made it his personal mission to see where alcohol was the most prominent. And he declared that it was in New Orleans, Louisiana. Yes. Because it took him 37 seconds to get alcohol when he got into the cab after he landed. That's true. Yes. And the cab driver just like pulled it out from under the seat and was like, here you go. (laughs) And then they talk about the 1924 Democratic National Convention. Oh, this was interesting. Yeah. This was very interesting. Again, it seemed like it was a mess, like everything else. Yes, it just, it was a mess. And there was a lot of dissent, and it was dry versus wet. What? Yep. And Al Smith was the candidate from New York City, Mm -hmm. and he was a wet candidate. He was like, give everyone the alcohol. And it also turned into like a city versus rural debate. Yes, it did. Very much so. City, like wet candidate. And then there was William Gibbs McAdoo, mm-hmm. who was a dry candidate, and he was a Confederate sympathizer and had the backing of the KKK. Okay. Yes, he and did. He was more of like the royal dry yes. candidate. And I guess they they battled for what sixteen days on yeah. who the candidate should be, and then eventually they didn't they couldn't make a decision from what I understood. Yeah, so and they picked a John W. Davis. Yeah. Because no candidate reached the three or two thirds majority Dirty vote, yes, that was needed, but and so they went with John Davis. Was, um, but in the end, it didn't really matter no. because Calvin Coolidge, Coolidge won. won. So yeah, but <laughs> good old silent Cal. Cal. Yes, that must have been a fiasco, darling. Oh. For, thir- for oh, for sixteen days yelling and scr- oh my goodness, I couldn't even believe uh, yeah. that was amazing. And then it goes into the downfall of. The major players. Yes. So first is George Remus, who has a fascinating story. Oh, it's an awful story, but it's very, very fascinating. fascinating. So we're going to cover it. <laughs> <clears throat> so he kind of went too far with his empire and started to run into pro. I almost said probation officers. <laughs> Prohibition officers who were honest prohibition right, officers. Right. So they would not take bribes, and mm-hmm. they would go after anyone, no matter who. Exactly. So... I believe the, the head agent was a Burt Morgan. That sounds I believe, about right. Yes, he was the agent who became the stumbling yeah. block for George Remus. Yeah. And um, Mabel Walker Millibrand oh, was yes. the one that directly oversaw uh, yes. his takedown. Yes, very, yes. So they eventually arrested him, and it took less than two hours to convict him, yes. and he was sentenced to two years in prison. Yes. So, and then he, and he served in Atlanta, I believe, mm-hmm. and he, he adjusted well by bribing officials yeah. to make him as comfortable as possible, yeah. and he made sure everything was in his wife's name while he served time, Yeah, which... It kind of backfired. It kind of him. backfired, but yeah. very smart at the same time. Yeah. And he also was convinced that he was going to get out of it. Yes, he was. Because Jesse Smith, who was the name of his contact with the district attorney, who yes. was Harry Doherty. Yes. Um, but unfortunately, Jesse Smith had committed suicide. Yes, he went. So yeah, yeah. he didn't have any influence in the district attorney anymore. anymore. No. Yeah. I, I think he felt guilty over and he, he did over all the investigations yeah. in that. So then, Imogen. Uh, so <laughs> that was George's wife. Yes. And he had all of, or he put all of his affairs in her, like you said. Right, which included um, a mansion and everything that they owned yeah. and money, everything. Um, while he was in prison, she filed her divorce. Yes. And then got together with Franklin Dodge, 
who was a prohibition agent that was investigating which was such a like hollywood movie twist exactly yes (laughs) i felt like yeah i was like oh my god it's a lifetime movie network or yeah you know but and what they did is they sold everything Mm -hmm. they stripped the house she filed for divorce and i'll let you take the next part well what happens so remus discovers this once he got out of prison because the entire time he was in prison he He had had no no idea idea. he had no idea this was going on so he immediately gets out finds out his wife is divorcing him for the probation agent so he made a plan to kill his wife which he did and then he immediately turned himself in for murder yes but then during the court case he was found not guilty under insanity yes by temporary insanity but his life was ruined. It, yes, it was. And when he did kill his wife, he did it on the side of a road. Yeah, she was. They were going. Both were going to the courthouse in mm-hmm. two different cars, and he and he turned himself in. And yeah. A fun fact that I found because I made the I normally do the images for the episodes afterwards, um, but because of short recording time, I did them today when we're recording. And I discovered, when I was trying to find an image of George Remus that was out of copyright that I could use, um, that there's George Remus whiskey that you can buy. Really? Yeah. And they have a special Great Gatsby themed, <gasps> like, oh wow. I don't know what they're called, like flavor, I guess, yeah. or like type. So I found that. Oh, that's so cool. I was like, that's fun. <laughs> that's so cool. Now, George, um, I, sorry, I didn't put this in my notes and I should have. Oh that he did live a, li- a fairly long life after everything. Yeah. I think he was in his 70s when mm-hmm. he passed. Yeah, and also when I was looking at that, I guess um, some sources credit him as the inspiration behind The Great Gatsby, too. Yes, I read yeah. I, Yes, and that makes total sense. It does. It makes total, total sense when you yeah. think about it. I think yeah. someone should do a biography on this gentleman, me too. <laughs> yeah, or a movie because yeah. I think it would be fascinating. Yeah, it was. He I'm, out of the whole document. Yeah, that the, was my favorite yes. part was him because I never mm-hmm. saw that twist coming. I know with him being imp- and then his wife taking everything. I was just like, where did the, where did this come from? I know. But it, to me, that was my favorite part mm-hmm. of the whole second part of the documentary. And then from him, you go to Roy Olmsted, who I also found interesting. Yes. So the government hired professional wiretappers, which was a brand new thing. It had never been done before to spy on Roy's operation. Yes. And it got him convicted. And around this time, Bertha Landis took over as Seattle's mayor to help try and get rid of the city government official who were corrupt and were Roy's contacts. So he again lost his Every, entire like network. So, yeah. <laughs> network I would call it. Yeah. Uh, she went after speakeasies, recruited honest prohibition officers, and the officers would listen in to his phone calls and yes. there were so many calls about alcohol. Yes, there were. And but Roy's people were smart and they would refuse because they knew the new mayor wasn't exactly going for it. But Roy started to deliver alcohol himself just to yes. keep it going, and that's how he got caught. And Richard Fryant was the wiretapper who caught him. And oh, wait, hold on. 
I know, I don't, I thought I had written that note. For some reason, I must not have yeah. finished my notes because I don't have him in here. Anymore. Oh, no, you're fine. Okay. Um, so after that, Will Whitney and other prohibition agents raided Roy Olmsted's house, and they convicted him, and all of his accomplices also got arrested. And Roy's assistant, who I don't know his first name, Roy's one assistant listed out the names of every single person who ever got bribes from the organization, so they let him go. <laughs> wow. <laughs> because he was the one that was taking he, all the calls. Right, that's everything. true, so he knew, that, he knew everything. And this is where it <clears throat> got interesting to me. So Roy Olmsted then sued the telephone company and the government, saying that wiretapping <clears throat> was an invasion of privacy, and the tapes that they had couldn't be used to convict him because it was against personal the right to like privacy and like personal right. rights. And so he did this to try and get out of jail and it made it all the way to the Supreme Court. Okay. And the Supreme Court upheld his conviction and said that wiretapping was fine. But Mabel Walker Willebrand came out in support of Roy Olmsted, saying that, no, it definitely is. It what? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I believe it was a very close Supreme Court decision. I think it was like 5-4. Okay. So, so, yeah, it was very... And then Roy got four years of hard labor and had to pay fines. And this encompassed the entire time he was in the court system. So by the time he did receive a presidential pardon, he had already served everything. Okay, yes. So, so he was pardoned of his crimes, crimes but, but he already served all yeah. his time and he moved, he has he moved on after that. Yeah. And by this point, people were just kind of tired of prohibition yes. and wanted changes to the Volstead Act and the amendment. And this created a whole new thing because no constitutional amendment had ever been repealed. Right. So, and that is the whole part three. Three. Yes. So that'll be the next episode. That'll be our next one. Yes. So we'll be getting started on that. Yeah, but I really want a book on George Remus. I just want to. I do it. too. I want more information on that man. I'm just. I'm very curious. That whole with his just took me by surprise. I never expected it. I remember when I was. Watching it and listening, I kept going, what? What? Yeah. Because <laughs> I just never expected that. Yeah, not at all. It, like I said, it was just a lot of information. Very much. I learned so much, but it was so much So much. It was, it was overwhelming after mm-hmm. a while, trying to keep everybody straight and yeah. all the different places they talk about. And I mean, we didn't even cover, like, Half the New York it. gangsters yeah. or because there's just so many. That, it's, you know, and it's just, there was just a lot. Yeah. There was just a lot. <laughs> I imagine there'll be a lot in third, third one. Two. Yes, because that's the repeal and everything after mm-hmm. that. So. So if you're interested, listen to that one next week. And thank you for joining me again for you're this. Welcome. And if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or anything at all, please feel free to call the library at 570-348-3000. Or email me at aloney at albright.org. That is A-L-O-N-E-Y at albright.org. Thank you. Thank you.